0: many creatives have felt pretty safe from the robot apocalypse that has affected so many other industries. But with new artificial intelligence tools that are creeping their way into the creative arts market, soon it may be difficult to tell the difference between humans and robots when it comes to audio, video, and the written word. Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I am your host, Blythe Brumley, the owner of Digital Dispatch, and we cover the attention economy, B2B marketing, and how it all ties into the world of logistics. And in today's episode, we're talking about AI versus the creative world of audio, video, and writing, how AI and cloud computing are shaping our work days with Lindsay Watt of Parade and Eamon Hussein of Microsoft. And with the Jaguars playing in Cincinnati tonight, I thought it would be a cool dive to dive deep into the logistics of the NFL. So let's go ahead and get started because we got a lot of topics to cover today and I want to make sure that we hit all of them. So first topic, let's talk about the creative arts versus AI. And With respect to creatives in the past, we've covered shows like The Great Resignation, where it talks about all of the the people that are leaving their current job and going into another field. Uh, Maybe they're tired of their 9 to 5. Maybe they're tired of a a certain job that they've had for maybe 10, 20 years, and they want to try something new, or maybe turn that side hustle into their full-time dream. A lot of those people that are leaving the full-time workforce belong to marketing agencies. People are leaving in droves from the agency life because they're facing burnout. They have too much commitment. They're working you know, 70 plus hours a week for an agency and they just don't want that life anymore. So they're either going in house or they're going freelance like what I did years ago. And so with all of that, all of those market conditions going on, we've got a new challenger that's entered the realm and that is artificial intelligence. And it creates the adoption of AI, creates a whole new set of challenges and benefits. And while I could I could really go in depth with a lot of these different topics, segments within AI, especially when it comes to the creative field, I want to start with just an overall view of how it is affecting our current workday, especially if you're creating audio, video, blogging, uh, e-commerce products, all of those things. Because it, especially, let, let's go ahead and start with the written word. That is the first sort of segment of AI where we're starting to see more companies creep into it. And it can affect blogging, it can affect e-commerce products, it can affect landing page copy, how you write your emails. Um, You may have seen a small sample of this while you're writing an email in Gmail and Gmail wants to autofill what it thinks you might say or in Google Docs. That's another example of how AI is creeping in. But let me read you this little note from Morning Brew because it breaks it down a little bit further. From Morning Brew, they say copy.ai and other AI-enabled copywriting companies like Jarvis and Copysmith are built upon OpenAI's GPT-3. GPT-3 is kind of a big deal. It's trained on roughly a trillion words to predict but not understand text. It's widely considered to be one of the most advanced language models in existence. Now that company, Copy.ai, is something I heard about probably about a year ago. I didn't take it too seriously because I've been a writer my entire life. And I just brush it off thinking there's no way that a robot will be able to convey human emotions and feelings and put that into context into something that somebody else, a, a human, would want to read. But if you're writing landing page copy or e-commerce product descriptions, uh, a change is coming for you because it's it's really remarkable, this little test run that I did. So check out this example from copy.ai that I tried myself. We're going to put this up on the screen. And this is a new product that I'm going to be offering on uh, my e-commerce store on Digital Dispatch. And it's essentially a high-end website template. Now I input my company name, the product name, and a short description. And then the system spit out all of these product descriptions. Now, if you're listening to the audio version of this show, you might not be able to see it, but it lists out a bunch of different. I, I input my my product title, and then I entered in, you know, just described it, just one sentence that described what that product is, and then it started spitting out all of the different product descriptions. And now on that image, on that page, you have to select more like this or you scroll through all of the different options that they're showing you and you select more like this once you find something that looks relatively similar to what you want your product description to say now this page and if you're you're listening to the audio version of this show you I could scroll and scroll and scroll to see all of these different combinations of how this AI Generated this text, and it, I, I, I wish you guys could have seen my jaw on the ground and the light bulbs start going off because they're, they're It was one of those moments where I said, "Oh my gosh, this to really help me in part of my job that becomes monotonous. Writing product descriptions is a pain in the butt, especially for someone who likes to write creatively." it's a little bit of a challenge especially when you're dealing with all of the other things that go on throughout your your business day sometimes it's a drain on you with all of the other business and clients that you're taking care of in order to to develop product descriptions and and take care of the marketing stuff that you need for your own company that that's a challenge for a lot of marketers and a lot of agencies out there now that to me was a big help it's almost like the warehouse workers you know i i heard a great story about how when a warehouse company, when they decide that they're going to bring robots into the mix and start to help out some of their employees, they have to have a psychological training session with the with the uh, human workforce in order to look at robots and see them as a helping hand, as something to help them do their job better instead of something that's going to be taking their job. So it's interesting that they have to do that psychological training from that perspective, where in this perspective, it was almost the same realization to me that, that eventually this could potentially take my job as a writer, as a content creator, and but it could also help at the end of the day where it could help me do more things faster. So that's the good side, I guess, of of the AI and helping you out with the you know the creative portion of your job. Maybe you're not a creative type and you need help in that regard to write marketing emails, to write website copy and text to go into a blog. Then that is could be a huge benefit in order to try that out. But then there's also the scarier side of AI. And we all know about misinformation. We've probably heard that beaten to death over the last couple of years, um, especially with the last couple of elections. Um, Misinformation is a huge problem even on social media. But what if you see and hear a person of influence saying whatever you want them to say, or somebody else is programming what you want that person to say? Uh, I want to play right now. I want to p- check out this video from Vocal Synthesis, which I think is is pretty remarkable. To be
1: or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is not blame the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, but to take arms against the sea of troubles and by
0: opposing and them, to die, to sleep no more, and by sleep to save. Now that clip is obviously Jay Z never rapped any part of of uh, Shakespeare, and from that clip in particular jay is pretty pissed off about it. He's actually trying to sue the channel in order to get that video taken down. There's other channels or, there, or there's other videos exactly like that that are using past presidents and using audio, recorded audio of their voices in order to turn it into something that they want that person to say. And while it sounds a little choppy in, it at first. It's starting to come a long way because that video is at least a year old. So, if the technology is already there, then it's only going to continue to get better. Now, I'm assuming that video is not going to get taken down because I'm assuming it counts as a parody style video. So, YouTube has refused to take down that video. Um, so, it was, it's, remains to be seen of what Jay Z's legal action can actually take in that regard. But what about when you take audio and video and combine it as a synthetic reality? Let's play the next clip.
1: He is not real. Well, at least in contemporary terms, it is not. What if I were to tell you that I am not even a human being? Would you believe me? What is your perception of reality? Is it the ability to capture, process, and make sense of the information our senses receive? If you can see, hear, taste, or smell something, does that make it real? Or is it simply the ability to feel? I would like to welcome you to the era of synthetic reality. Now, what do you see?
0: Pretty crazy, right? Like that is not, clearly it's not Morgan Freeman, but I say clearly with a grain of salt because if, if give it a couple more years, you might not be able to tell the difference between it because it does look so real and it sounds real. And a more recent example of this is uh, Anthony Bourdain, the documentary that came out on Netflix just recently. There are parts of his speech patterns that were taken. Obviously, Anthony Bourdain is no longer with us, uh, but there was a documentary that was released about his life and about his his career, and they used parts of his audio that he said in the past in order to create lines spoken during the documentary. And it freaks some fans out. And, and it's, it kind of a borderline creepy of how you need to protect yourself if you're actively out there creating content um, especially if you're you're uh, in the media or you're a celebrity um, how are you going to protect your voice and your likeness from being used for creative arts in the future especially when a robot can do it so much easier and that AI technology has come so far um, using tools like this have been available for a few years now but they're only going to continuously get better. This last little note for Marketing Dive before we bring in our, our first guest. And for Marketing Dive, they say 11% of creative and media agency tasks are expected to be automated by 2023. And 23% of overall agency is, suspect, is expected to be automated by 2032 as these technologies extend their reach into areas like finance, HR, and account management. So we may reach a place where the creative can do the work of the entire agency with the help of AI. And I think the toughest part of all of this is obviously going to be able to do, to discern uh, what you're watching, if it's real or if it's AI generated, and then also choosing which part of your creative process that we want to leave to the human creatives. I think that's ultimately a decision that every creator is going to have to make, but it's things that you're going to start to have to think about in the long run and, and, and in the near future because, well, it, it really is, it's already here. Now, we spent some time talking about these AI tools that are in marketing, but what about AI in freight? Let's go ahead and bring in our first guest, Lindsay Watt. He's head of product over at Parade.ai as he joins the show. Welcome in, Lindsay.
1: Hey, great to be here. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much for joining the show. Now, now, I, I'm I'm well aware of of what Parade does and, and, and the solutions that they provide. But for folks who don't know, can you go ahead and give us a little bit of background of, of what the company does and, and how you got to Parade?
1: For sure. Let me, let me walk, let's let walk. unpack that. So at Parade, we do what we call capacity management. And the the goal of that is to work with freight brokers to help them find and then digitally book the best carrier for every single job, every single load. I, that's transformational. We can go a little deeper on that. Um, I've been here for about a year. Previous to that, I was at Convoy. Uh, helped them do a lot of work there around building a TMS that came with Convoy's capacity, Shipper TMS, the Convoy's capacity out of the box, um, and that was really my introduction to the freight tech space and the freight brokerage space, and I've I've just fallen in love with it. And so it's it's where I want to spend the next couple of years of my life because it's so interesting.
0: Right, because there's so many problems that need to still be solved in this industry. And it's really like it's it's one of those things that there's never gonna be it's never gonna be an industry that doesn't have problems every single day that need to be solved. But what are some of those day-to-day problems that, that you're solving for freight brokers out there? You, you, you mentioned uh, you know, just finding the best carriers. Can you can you qualify or quantify what a best means for each company? Oh,
1: absolutely. That's what makes it so exciting, right? Because if you uh, so we, I spent a lot of time talking to our customers. And before Parade came along, for some of our customers, it was Groundhog Day. Every single day, the loads would come in, and they would have to cover them. they kind of make a list of all the carriers maybe they'd worked with in the past, or people would have these sort of carriers that they thought were the best ones for certain situations. But it was just kind of hunting and pecking for carriers. And that's not a great use of folks' time, right? in Parade, we pull in a lot of different signals to figure out, automatically, who's the best carrier for every single load? Who should you start with? If there's 50,000 carriers in your network, how do you whittle that down to the 10 carriers who could cover this load today with a truck in hand, right? And that's where the AI can help. And then the individual can go and figure out, okay, which of these 10 do I want to call? Maybe I know there's eight of them that are worth calling, but two aren't. Um, That's where I think there's this notion of like technology and AI playing really well with humans to, to do some interesting stuff and change how we work. Right.
0: Are, are there parts of the, the of booking freight that can be automated versus stuff that maybe a, a freight broker doesn't want to be automated? Is is that, can they be picky about what they want automated versus oh, what they want absolutely, to do annually?
1: Absolutely. No, I, I love the way you're thinking there. Because one of the, we've, we've talked about how, um, you know, the job of a freight broker bundles together a bunch of different things. So if you think about it, there's the process of dispatching and uh, the, the everyday freight. Paying someone to call a carrier just to say, hey, can you take this load and then actually book it into the, into the TMS, not a great use of someone's time, right? That's something where if we can automate that process and we do it in Parade, we'll actually send out your loads and let the carriers get your loads in front of the carriers before they book and then let them book it themselves. Um, that means you don't have to call carriers just to book the transactional freight. Now, your team's still going to spend a ton of time talking to carriers, but now you're doing the high value stuff you're making sure you understand exactly what it is those carriers want you're tuning your network of freight for their network you're spending time working through the exceptions you're figuring out how am i going to get you home on friday right because i can do that Mm -hmm. uh and so you're able to focus on these much more valuable actions that you previously weren't because you're stuck firefighting the day-to-day
0: now, you, you, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head with developing, I guess, better carrier relations. Is, is, there, is there something, uh, is there, I guess, more time, now that they have more time in the day uh, to book those or to create, manifest, I guess, though, those relationships, is there any more, I guess, uh, time in the day that they could be spent doing other tasks? And are you guys focused on that as well? Or is it strictly just um, booking better carriers faster?
1: You know, that, that's an interesting question. I hadn't necessarily thought of it that way. One of the what I've found in the marketplace today is all of the all the customers we're talking to today are saying, "I have more freight that I know how to handle." If you look at the constraints on their growth, the the constraints they've got are number one, how do I get people to come to work in the morning? Because everyone's got a labor shortage across America right now. And then number two, how do I find great carriers? Right. And so we're we help with both of those problems right now. And so uh, right now, I would say our customers are saying, thank you for making more time of the day, and we filled it up with more freight. Um, and we filled it up with more time to talk to carriers. Um, but you're right, I haven't really thought about it, kind of like if you think a year or two down the line, when we get through this whole burden, um, what will people do? It's an interesting area to speculate. Yeah,
0: exactly, because if you're having, I, I, my brain would just immediately go there that if you're having uh, more streamlined processes in place for different brokers, then maybe in the future that leads to a situation where you don't need as many brokers, or you, you maybe there's you know more time that they could be spent building those relationships or, or doing other things within the office. Um, that that's where my brain went thinking that oh well maybe yeah, a freight broker could actually do a couple different things.
1: Yeah, let's let's play that out because um so so for the first thing first thing is a lot of the a lot of the companies we're working with we're seeing they don't really have like a freight broker per se. They've kind of broken down the jobs that a brokerage does into a bunch of different um, roles, right? So they might have a split model brokerage, which means there's some folks who are responsible for getting new business, and there's some folks who are responsible for getting the freight covered. And then we work primarily with those folks who are helping get the freight covered, and we just help them do a lot more loads per day. And what that does is it, it rather than, what I've seen is because these brokerages build kind of these specialized workforces, What they're doing is they're not going out and saying, you're not going to do a different task. They're all saying, how can I grow my business faster, right? Mm -hmm. And I've got this extra capacity. I know where my trucks are. I know what my carriers like to do. Let's go bring more business to us because they can go get it, right? Mm -hmm. And where this this plays out is I don't think we're going to see people doing more or newer jobs so much as we're going to start to see the emergence of some really big, new digital brokerages and i think that it's mm-hmm. going to change the landscape from being super fragmented with this incredible long tail of brokerages to um in the next in the next 5 6 years i think you're going to see the first couple of billion dollar digital brokerages and that's going to be really exciting to see
0: Wow, that, that would be incredible to see. That now, with focusing so much on building those carrier relations, what kind of metrics matter the most to a broker? And, and, and does that differ per the other side of it? Are, are there any qualifications that maybe a carrier is like, I don't want to run certain lanes? Are is there ways that you can program that into your system?
1: There are. There are. And I think there's if you think about it being,
0: imagine you're running your own freight brokerage,
1: right? There are a couple of operational metrics that we spend a lot of time looking at with our customers. And then there's some financial metrics we look at as well. They're super important. And some of the operational metrics that, that, that we really focus on as you're making that transformation to, to using machine learning and AI to, to digitize your business. Uh, number one, we want to look at what percentage of your loads are getting digitally booked. And that's a load where a carrier just clicks a button. And then they're able to actually buy the load, and they never have. They get the rate right content to them. They never have to talk to them with the brokerage. That's a huge important metric, right? Um, because that's that's proof in the pudding that you are becoming a truly digital brokerage, and like you're you're mm. you're going to be on that path to a billion bucks. The second one that I think is really important is carrier reuse, because if the the premise of capacity management, as we do it is that you are going to reuse your carriers. We work incredibly hard to reuse your same carriers. And, and when you do that, a lot of brokers initially think, ah, I can't reuse carriers. Like it's all one and done screen. But the reality is every broker has lanes that recur. You might not know the exact frequency or the specificity, but you could reuse your carriers. When you do that, great outcomes happen, right? Shippers are happier because you get people in other facilities. You're working with, you don't have to spend money on onboarding fees. Carriers are happy because you're getting predictable revenue with you. And so that's a key metric. And then all of this leads to um, another metric, which is kind of how many loads per day can my team do, right? Like we want to get them doing one, two more loads per day than they could before. And when you look at all this activity, it translates into a really important financial metric, which is the gross margins on your load, your overall profitability per load is going up. And so that's pretty exciting. So there's not a lot of opportunities in freight right now where you can both grow your business and increase your Unit economics profitability at the same time, and so um, it's a fun time to be in fintech.
0: Absolutely, and and you mentioned you brought up uh, essentially what what ROI, and that's what everybody wants anytime they they add a new tool to. So, how are you having that ROI conversation? Are are you collecting and and showing that data to to new prospects to to your current clients? How, How are you proving ROI to them? 100%.
1: hundred percent no it's a good this is this is the key thing so as part of our as part of our uh, sales process we have a, an ROI model we'll build for every single one of our customers that talks about how we're going to help you grow your business how we're going to help you increase your gross margins and how we're also going to um, save you money right That's nice but the, the proof is always in the pudding it's like where am I at and so one of the things that we spend a lot of time building, was actually metrics reporting and like we're geeks. we love the data. We built the metrics reporting and dashboards into the tool to actually measure these numbers. So you know we can sit down and play back the tape and we can say where are we at in terms of the commitments that we made to you three months ago? Are we on track? Are we ahead of track? What are some jobs we can tune? What are things you can do versus we can do? And you know that's the collaboration that we want to have with our customers and our partners because then we're working together to a joint goal versus saying where are we at?
0: And that that brings up my next question. So, as so a thank you for that, because you're you're hitting it out of the park, setting up my next question several times already during this interview. Now, uh, talk to me a little bit about your your feedback loop. How often are you talking to customers? Are are they affecting your your, your product roadmap as you move into 2022? Um, wh- what does that conversation look like as you're onboarding and, and, and talking with current customers?
1: Totally. I think there's you know part of the we sit back. One of the things I really love is. Um, we're a cloud-based company, right? And what that means is we can release all the time. We put out multiple features new every every couple of weeks, right? Every two weeks, we try and ship a bunch of new things, and they'll just dribble them out. And so the question becomes, well, where do, you, where do you get those ideas from, right? And our customers are very vocal about how we can help them improve their business. There are, you know, sometimes they're small things like, oh, if you could just tweak this little feature here, that would really help my business. Great, go do that. And then other times they're really big things where they're like, you know what, you guys know where all my trucks are. Could we partner together to use that to help grow my business? I have a few ideas. And so depending on depending on kind of the scale of these ideas, we have a bunch of different mechanisms for kind of how we can deal with that. So the small things they're great. We knock it out of the park. We just will put those into our backlog and we'll go build them. And then we uh, kind of thank the customer and let them know that it's there. And our customer success team helps make sure that gets rolled out. For the bigger ones. What I like to do, and I found this to be really successful across my career, is what we call a design partnership. And that's where we'll sit down with a customer who's got a big, audacious goal that they want us to help achieve. And we'll actually provide the resources at no charge to go build that. And It'll be a collaboration between the two of us. and They're going to teach us how to solve a problem, like a really big, hard problem. We're going to provide them with uh, software development resources they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, and, and build it for free, and then we're going to sell it to the rest of our customers. And so it's really fun both to, to work at the, the really low level of getting lots of ideas and pushing them out, but then also getting to work at the really high level with some of the leading thinkers in freight brokerage and figure out how we can change the industry.
0: Now, I, I probably should have asked this question earlier, but does Parade, is it a standalone product or is it something that integrates with a TMS or is it kind of a, a combination of the two?
1: Parade parade lives on top of the TMS. So we partner with your existing TMS and we focus on a very narrow niche that is capacity management. And so if you think of across the life cycle of a shipment, right, there's the freight broker tech stack, and you've got your TMS at the bottom, and then there's all these different areas that you need to think about, be it from like customer acquisition to capacity management to rating to track and trace and execution. And then there's the document management and the payment processing afterwards. And um, we handle this small portion of this capacity management. And we do it in close concert with the TMS. Hmm.
0: Now, and now, speaking of the, the, I guess, the larger scope of the industry, wh- where do you, you, you come from Amazon, you come from Convoy. So you have this outside, I don't want to say like even outsider's perspective, because this really is insider's as well. But you have, uh, n- now you're coming into this space and, and and you've been with Parade for a little while now. So you have a great perspective on where the industry needs to go as a whole. Do, do you have any kind of ideas where you think that freight tech still can, can make an impact? Because right now it feels a little overwhelming with all of the tech that's coming into the space. But but I wonder if there's still room for improvement. Oh
1: yeah, I mean it's, I think one of the one of the things. So Amazon they always talk about day one. It's still day one. It's still day one, right? And we always want it to be day. They always want it to be day one because, like, that's when there's just lots of opportunity. And I I really believe that even though we're probably eight to ten years into freight tech, right? It's still day one. Like if you think about it today, we have we've got um, everyone's going to have a TMS. We're starting to get everyone on to track and trace. The thing that I'm most excited about is we're starting to see that the, the shippers have made the transition to digital, the big shippers have all gone digital. The carriers now are starting to make the transition to digital. So we ran some numbers internally because we've got, we're at the point now at Parade, we've got several years with the data on how carriers bid, right? And we've seen a 6x increase in the past two years of the number of digital quotes per load, right? And wow. um, that's, that's really important because what that means is that the carriers are now starting to go digital. And I actually had one of our, one of our customers told me, he's like, there were 100,000 MC numbers that got created in the last six months and every single one of those new a digital carrier. I think he's right. And the way those carriers find work and book work is going to be completely different from how carriers did it five years ago. And so I really think that we're just at the beginning of the real change in freight tech and, and freight brokerage. Um, and that's exciting because that creates the opportunity for a new set of winners. And so I mentioned earlier how I think in five years, you know, we're going to have like five, six new billion dollar brokerages that are, um, are going to be like truly digital. And mm-hmm. that's going to change everything. It's going to be a completely different ballgame. It's going to be exciting.
0: And so with that said, what do you think that the modern tech stack will look like for a freight broker maybe in the next two to three years?
1: Yeah, I think a couple of things. I mean, obviously, I think there's going to be a capacity management system where I wouldn't work a parade. Um, (laughs) But I think that's that's a critical part. Having a TMS that lets you integrate the best of breed is really important. Um, I think 10 years ago, your TMS might have been able to do everything. That's no longer possible. You need to have a TMS that can really help you with managing core transactions, Uh, managing payments, managing the overall operation of a load, but then partners really, really well with the specific areas um, where you've got problems. And so that might mean working really well with the capacity management system. Probably means working really well with the rating system because pricing is going to be really important. I think another area that that we haven't really started thinking through is, um, and I think this can be part of the Freight Broker Tech stack in a few years, is how can you just bid on thousands of loads at once? Bidding is a very manual process right now. Um, I believe that there's a huge opportunity to automate that. And I hope that Praet does an opportunity to play in some of that. So there's going to be a big change in, in what a, the tech stack of a broker looks like in the next five years versus what it is today.
0: So you're not afraid of of say you you're head of product over at Parade. So you're not afraid of a robot coming in or even AI coming in and, and and stealing your job, right? So you you would probably use some of these tools that we mentioned earlier in the show to help your your job, or are you are you, are you against the robot apocalypse coming into the creative? Oh, arts?
1: I, I I mean I I built robots in my past life in Amazon, so I'm <laughs> I'm firmly on the sides of uh, working with robots rather than against robots. <laughs>
0: So you're le- you're less of a Will Smith and and, and I Robot and more of uh, everybody else. Maybe his grandma that's in the movie. I don't know if you saw that movie, but yeah, that's what's exactly. on my brain. I boss. do. I love <laughs> it.
1: Yeah, I always think that you know the term I've heard is centaurs, which is like humans plus robots, <laughs> and it's kind of half human, half <laughs> horse, so to speak. But I actually think it's an apt analogy because there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff that we do that can just be automated like at a certain level a robot's just a fancy washing machine right it does something that we don't really want to do um True. and it, it frees up time for us to do the stuff that we actually want to do and human wants and needs are unlimited right they're unlimited yeah. there's no bounds so um it just unlocks new potential for us that's how I firmly think about
0: it awesome well that, that that's a great moment to end the, the the show on where where can people find more of your work and and follow parade
1: yeah for sure so uh parade.ai that's our website best best place to uh, learn more about us and I'm Lindsay, L-A N D S A Y at parade.ai. If you ever want to reach out and talk.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It was a, it was a fun conversation. One of us is afraid of the robots and the other one isn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, we've talked about AI and marketing. We've talked about AI in SaaS and in the freight broker world. But what about on the cloud computing side? Yeah, we're going to keep it with the tech conversation. So let's go ahead and bring in Eamon Hussein. He is the director of Intelligent Cloud over at Microsoft. Welcome in, Eamon.
2: Hey, good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining the show. Now, I was listening to an interview where you said you you took some time off after graduating with a computer science degree and to do some consulting before joining Microsoft. Can you give us a little bit of some insight on on why you went from the consulting world back into the corporate world?
2: Absolutely. So one of the things that I, uh, when I finished up with my education, I actually, before even I got into consulting, I did take some time off to just figure out what I want to do in life. But once I figured that that computers and the the generation of uh, technology is going to be leading all the change, I I immediately found myself somebody that could guide me. So I found a career coach, a mentor, somebody else to work with. And he gave me this idea like, hey, if you want to be good at consulting, you need to not only get into it at an early place, but also work yourself through it. So if you think of the consulting organizations that you may hear about in, in the world today, like Accenture and Deloitte, the ENYs, they are at the top of their game, right? But there's a lot of different niche organizations in the middle. So, The reason before I landed at Microsoft, I did that consulting is I wanted to get good at it, helping people strategize, solve problems, outcome-based mindset and then eventually ended up in microsoft because at microsoft you you're working for a product company and they are creating a lot of solutions a lot of engineering goes into it but not often are they aligned to the outcomes uh consumers want or customers want or clients want. And that was a natural progression of my direction of growth. And ultimately, the same career coach told me that after you've spent some time at Microsoft or an AWS or Google and one of these product companies, you eventually want to go to industry because that's now you can be- bring the best of both worlds of strategizing, solving, solving with product. And then now uh, working in industry, either it be transportation, oil and gas, wherever it is. And that's the journey that I'm on today. So that's one of the reasons I started with consulting was you have to understand the diversity of uh, challenges out there and uh, what better way to do it without consulting.
0: I love that because it, it, it's it's sort of the the ethos of, of what I like to do, and it's find out the end goal and see if you can reverse engineer it. But but you're doing it on a, on a, a slightly much much smarter scale that, that I'm doing. And 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 speaking of of that breakdown, you, I always like to, to send over a pre-show document to anybody that comes on the show just to get an idea of, of, of their expertise and they, what they want to talk about. And you mentioned in our pre-show document that you wanted to talk about leveraging cloud solutions to accelerate transformation to do more with cloud, mobile, and internet-facing solutions to help achieve and do more. Now, if you were to take that sentence and explain it to a fifth grader, how would you break that down? Because that's the kind of explanation. I'm glad glad you
2: want to know it in that context, right? Uh, I work at Microsoft today. I've been here a little while. And one of the ethos of Microsoft is to help everybody achieve more with technology. Now, one of the things that you look at, All the industries, either it be transportation, trucking, logistics, uh, shipping, whatever you think of, the biggest challenge for adoption of technology to help you do more is either education where you don't know what the technology is and what it can do, or it's not custom designed for solving a particular kind of problem. outcome that you want. So when I think of Microsoft and Azure, Azure is the cloud platform for Microsoft. It is just a platform, it doesn't solve anything for you. So I need to take this and empower people to do something with it that will give you the outcome you want. If you're in healthcare and you wanna save lives, I'm like, "You're, you're learning medical information to save lives, but what can I do to help with solutions and products and services that makes it easier for you to do it. So if you're an EMS uh, person and you're in a truck driving to go save some lives, if you had all the data in one place about healthcare or the person or patient's information, that's helping you save more lives faster and quicker. Well, that's a platform. That's how I will build it, either it be a device or the cloud solution that goes with it and vice versa. And so when I think of that, what if I, if I were to explain to somebody that has very little opportunity to be involved in technology, I want to use all the solutions that I have like a Lego and build you something that you would use to achieve more. And that's ultimately my personal desire. That's why I was a consultant. That's what I was using all the knowledge to bring together. And now I have the opportunity to be at Microsoft where Intelligent Cloud and Azure helps them give that opportunity to almost any discipline, any industry, anywhere in the world uh, to be uh, ready for what the future holds for us.
0: And, and so with a freight company, I and mean, especially just the freight industry in general, it, it's very old school, and it has been old school for a long time, very slow to adopt new technology. So if I'm if I'm working at a forward thinking freight company, and I, and I come to you, what would be some of those things that you would set up using the, the, the Microsoft Assure platform? What, what kind of systems and structures would you be setting up? Is it more just or is it more purely data driven?
2: So the, that's a great way to think of it. Data is the crux of everything. Data is held in many different ways, either be in spreadsheets or paper, pencil, invoices, whatever way you want to look at it. That is there, and that's always been there. It, it has actually evolved on its own. You know, you think about the days where payroll was done on pay, uh, spreadsheets. Now it's done through systems and payroll operators. But if you think of in the freight industry, uh, the the context of freight and the the bare minimum of it is. Driving from one point to another, or transporting from one point to another safely and on a timely manner. There's a lot of systems and solutions that have been involved since the beginning of this industry to make it convenient for it. But what has happened over time is the complexity has seeped in, and so a lot of the freight companies that are all you you say old school mindset is not really old school mindset. It's the change has a cost, it has a penalty. And if Mm. you are not penalized heavily, you're probably not making that change and you're just doing with what you would do. And and when you think of this, I, I live in Houston, Texas. It's a big oil and gas country. A lot of people look at oil and gas and say, you're very old school because technology hasn't really enabled the things that you would think would be great to solve those problems for. So when I think of it, when I think of a freight company, well, the first thing I want to do is think like a consultant. What can I do to make you better at that? As so one of the things I can do is reduce costs, the uh, cost of uh, compliance or logs, whatever it is, and that is essentially data. So if I can make it for easy for you to collect the data, either through automation, through GPS, or through just you know entering it through an iPhone app of some sort. I'm making it easy for you to do what you like to do is get from point A to point B with goods and services for your customers. So I want to reduce costs. At any freight company, regardless of size, big or small, I want to reduce your complexity using technology. Now, implicitly, technology is complex. And so we at Microsoft want to make it simple enough where consumers and citizen developers, people like yourself can take it and make something out of it in a way that does not require uh, expertise and complexity of technical experts that... Make it furthermore challenging to adopt.
0: Well, let's break that down a little bit more. How are you making all, all of the data that that we have as a business, as as our operating costs, and you know all of the intricacies that are involved? How are you taking that data, collecting it, and then making it actionable for
2: these companies? That, that um, awesome question, right? So I, I had a chance to stay online before I joined uh, this hour, that bottom of the hour, and I was listening to your previous. Uh, 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 guest. And one of the things you think about is AI, artificial intelligence. There's complexity in the word itself. Artificial intelligence, what is it? The intent of artificial intelligence or machine learning, you hear these things uh, in context of data. Data, when you have it, it comes in a form of numbers, zeros, and columns, and rows. It, It tells you something. Either you've created it yourself in a way of a spreadsheet, or have created in a way of some data uh, coming from systems or engineering or trucks or gps or the, the the mechanics of whatever it is you're doing from the perspective of the freight, uh, you have to take it and put it in a place that is commonly easily understandable so one of the challenges in any industry regardless of what it is is uh, the common denominator of what that data means uh, it has to have a pattern and now yeah. you can employ a human being to look at this pattern and create a business analyst or come lead the ones that are doing this they're trying to take all this data make some common sense of it. So when I want to make it easy if I take all the data so for the first thing is digitizing if it's analog let's make it digital so if you have to scan it if I'm scanning a form, it's going to come in as a picture. So the first thing I need to do is convert the picture into rows and columns and tables and numbers that can be automatically understood to be numbers versus just a picture. And so I'm using optical character recognition. I'm using forms, uh, input devices, so I can take that and create a, vert- a digital version of that analog form. If you're talking about... Uh, if fuel costs or invoice costs or payroll costs, those are coming in a form of a, a, a PL or an accounting ledger of some sort. I can digitize that as well. Now, if I've done all that and that's great. You know, you have some level of complexity and simplicity. You have all the digital forms so you can be redundant and uh, have a disaster recovery in the way of natural uh, disasters. But now I want to do something with it. That's where AI comes in. That's where machine learning comes in because I don't have enough humans to sit there and look through it and crunch through it, old school forensics type stuff. I can create some models that say, hey, if this looks like an invoice number and it has a date and a value and it has a pay to, it's probably an invoice. Let's create the ledger equivalent of it and call it an invoice. If it's a payroll, we can collect this data and create a a, a digital version of the real world using the data as the common denominator. So the first thing I would do is get the data into the systems uh, that are computerized, obviously, and that's where the cloud comes in because you want to scale in massive amounts. And then after I've done that, I'm going to use models uh, for either be transportation, like, for example, route planning. Uh, in the old days, you would have a route planner actually know the route by heart or by driving it enough. But now you can use computers and GPS maps to do that route planning in a computerized fashion. So you take away that human need to sit there and have complexity introduced to it. And then you have road closures or uh, uh, outages of some sort in the transportation world that now can be in- incorporated faster and quicker. That only happens in a digital world.
0: Uh, that's all fascinating because it, it makes me just, you know, the, the wheel starts spinning and I, I start thinking about all of the things that can be done right now with with automation and AI and managing all of that data within the cloud. But are there any parts of the workday that can't be automated yet that can't, you know, that, that you know, a cloud-based platform wouldn't solve today, but hopefully it'll be able to solve it in the next couple of years? Is that something that, that maybe Microsoft is Perhaps, working on for the future? Yeah
2: yes it is so think of it this way uh uh technology as intelligent as it is today it's really not it's it's not at the human level as you it can be so i'm going to use a real example of uh, this it, it was uh, in a transportation and logistics operation there was an individual that their personal job was uh, taking their personal uh, delivery vehicle collecting uh things at different locations and bringing it to a centralized place for distribution and, and, and further uh, logistic support. And they were looking at reports of this driver's performance and they were using some automation in the vehicle and they were just using like time logs that the driver kept. And they noticed that this driver had great performance in the morning half of the day and in the evening half, on the afternoon half, it was not as good. and. Okay. Automatically the leaders of the company or the people that were managing this individual thought that maybe you know he's distracted or something's going on, you know, he's not motivated. You know, maybe he's got you know something on the side going on that prevents him from being motivated and having timely performance because this was an uh, organization that needed timely delivery and collection of uh, things from their customers. What happened was they after they looked at all these reports, they thought this person needed performance improvement and needed to be worked out of the system. But one of those managers said, hey, you know what? I should probably just go on a ride along and see what's going on. And this gentleman driver was a a little bit senior, so they thought maybe it's an age-related challenge that over time this person is getting tired, we need to think differently. But what happened was when they were doing the route, when they're sitting in the car driving this person, in the morning, the person was driving away with the sun on their back. In the afternoon when they're doing the routes, the sun was right in front of them. So what was happening, this person was... Unable to uh, look at things because of the car glare from the glass and was missing exits and wasn't able to slow down or speed up fast enough to take those exits and was missing turns and had to double back to go to uh, a spot that they missed. And and what 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 ultimately became obvious was this this had nothing to do with the technology in the car. It had nothing to do with the driver performance. It had nothing to do with the samples of the route. It was the sun was in his face, and he couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. Even the best visor couldn't stop you from having that thing. And if you if it was a West Coast operation, the West Coast. If you ever have a sunset, in the and the it's really bright. It's un <laughs> it's blinding sometimes if you're in the right, right in the direction of it. Right now. I'll tell you, no technology would have ever fixed that. Even if I had sensors in the car that, you know, told me weather stuff, you have to be in the car to realize that was what the problem is. So technology, as good as it's going to get, will always have a gap. So I can automate everything. I'm like, we have drones and uh, autopilot and planes. It's been around for 30 some years. You still can't get rid of a pilot in a plane, no matter how hard you think you can do it. It just doesn't work, right? So there's going to be a human component that will always be relevant. But what that is, that human component doing? is the domain discipline. That person is very good at what they do in the domain of their expertise. If they're in oil and gas, they're great at oil and gas. If they're drivers, they're great at transportation logistics. If they're hospital workers, doctors, nurses, they're great at that. So that's what's going to happen is you will get to that common place where your expertise is knowledge for the domain and computers, AI, robots. All of that will eventually uh, catch up, but that's you know, you know know centuries ahead in, in my mind. I don't think we'll have a singularity where you know, artificial intelligence will be sentient and it will become the new world order. So I, I don't think, uh, contrary to what you are talking about earlier, you don't have to worry about robots taking over our life anytime soon. <laughs> I think that singularity of intelligence that suddenly becomes sentient is a long ways away in my mind.
0: Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think a lot of drivers are, are worried about, you know, uh, you know, with, the, with trucks coming into the market that are completely driven by AI. And I just don't think that. I think that that is uh, years and years down the line. I don't know that that's going to happen anytime. time. Uh, maybe not in our lifetime, but who knows, maybe in the future. I, I personally don't uh, think it
1: going happen in our lifetime either. Good,
0: so good. Uh, a smart person agrees with me. <laughs> I, I appreciate the insight, Eamon. Ay- where can folks follow more of your work? Where can they follow uh, what Microsoft's doing, all that good stuff?
2: Absolutely. So obviously, you can go to the Microsoft website, Microsoft.com forward slash Azure. Azure is a platform of cloud computing. We want to use that for solving real world problems. No industry, no, uh, no uh, vertical that it cannot be used uh, to uh, leverage cloud. The idea of cloud is to reduce your computing costs in, in-house and on-site. I mean, for example, you're a amazing video podcaster. You have technology and solutions. Imagine how much of that is today in the cloud. You don't have to really invest in these solutions. You can pay by subscription, by month, by the unit uh, you. Need, you so that's one of the things we want to do. All that information is available in Microsoft. We have a lot of devices, solutions that all solve problems across the industry. Yes, Microsoft is a big company, so sometimes you get overwhelmed by it. But at the end of the day, it's technology to help you achieve more. And that's what we really focus on and want to do more of.
0: Absolutely. I love it. Using technology to help our workday not compete with it. Big, big thank you to Eamon to and, and uh, have a good rest of your day.
2: Thank you. Likewise.
0: <laughs> thank you so much. Whew, now, I, I consider myself uh, pretty tech savvy. When I talk to folks like Eamon and Lindsay, I, I realize that I still have so much to learn, but we have spent a lot of time on the tech side of things, talking tech throughout this entire episode. So let's switch gears a little bit because I don't, if you're listening to the audio version, um, and not watching video, I am actually dressed in my Jaguars regalia. I think that's the proper way to, to use that. The Jaguars play tonight against Cincinnati. Um, so I thought it would be fun to do another one of our deep dives into the logistics of, and we're doing the logistics of the NFL. Um, so I found a bunch of videos uh, online, courtesy of the NFL, and also the Chargers um, have put out a couple really good videos too. But they break down the process of what goes, what is all involved with an NFL game day, and it was a lot more intricate than I thought that it would be. So I'm going to go ahead and and start kickoff. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Let's kick off this conversation um, with a quote from one of the culinary chefs on NFL game day. And he said that if we have a Sunday game, it starts on Monday. And when he says it, he's referring to planning the food for game days. And that is just simply it's one piece of the puzzle when it comes to the logistics of the NFL so while I was researching the logistics of the NFL, not to, you know, drink every time I say that phrase, but there were some surprising factoids that made me appreciate all of the intricacies within the league. So shout out to the NFL YouTube channel and the Chargers for dropping some great BTS of what is going on in and around game day that we as fans, when we're sitting in the stands or when we're watching at home on TV, we don't notice these things that much. So I want to share with you a few of my favorites. So the first one is food. So let's cover food. That's usually one of the most important parts or aspects of a game day. And for the logistics of the food on NFL game day, they said deliveries are scheduled for late on Mondays and all day on Tuesday. The culinary team gets started on Wednesdays after they get all of their shipments in, especially planning for the club and the box seats. Those are usually the ones that get the best food. The rest of us peons, we get the chicken and we get the pizza and we get the burgers, which are uh, they're, they're, they're pretty good too, depending on where you go to eat your food. Um, now for earlier kick off, like 1pm, the culinary team will actually start prepping at 3am on game days. So they start planning on a Wednesday, and then they actually start prepping the food at 3am at on the game day itself. Now, weather also affects their, their game day planning as far as food is concerned. Because if you think about it, if it's cold, you always have gloves on. So you're not going to eat nachos. I thought that that was interesting that that goes into play whenever they're, they're planning food on what to order and supply and demand and all that good stuff. Now, if it's hot, Water bottles and ice become a top supply need. Now, speaking of the weather, especially for stadiums that have real grass like Green Bay, Jacksonville also has real grass. That's one of our, our few W's that we have on the board here, currently windless. Uh, but you have to, uh, with a place like Green Bay, it gets so cold and you have to manipulate the good growing conditions year round. So we're going to put a graphic up that is actually what the Green Bay field is made up of. They did the, a really big renovation a couple of years ago and they said that sand is hauled in and laid down on several layers of tubing. This tubing circulates antifreeze that helps to keep the field warmer and it's powered by boilers within the stadium itself or broilers, I guess is what the, probably the right name, not boilers. The field is not actually boiling. Um, but they also built this system according accordance with the sun patterns. The north end zone gets the sun when the south end zone doesn't. So they supplement the lack of sunlight with grow lights that are on the field when the players obviously aren't playing on the field. So if you're looking at this image, you see a bunch of different farm grow lights, industrial size grow lights that are on the field. And they're specifically on one more side of the field than they are on the other side of the field. Now switching gears a little bit to the broadcast side of the logistics of the NFL, the broadcast team puts together a minute by minute, sometimes seconds game script. This game script is created for every single game day and then that script gets submitted to the NFL and it's either approved or denied. Now, the video team operates 12 cameras on a game day, eight are manned, four are unmanned. And then fireworks also play a role in the timing for player intros and touchdowns. That's probably where the second-by-second second, uh, game script is coming into play. And if you're looking at the screen, you can see just a small sample of what the game script actually looks like. And this was created just a couple of years ago, um, but a lot of teams will use this similar format and watching the videos. And I linked to that video as well as all of the other guests and, and, and stories that we've talked about on the show within the show description. So be sure to check that video out. But fireworks play a huge role because it's the timing for the intros and the touchdowns. They prep for only six touchdowns a game. So if the home team scores more, they don't get any more fireworks. We've never had that problem in Jacksonville. Uh, Maybe one day we will have that problem. Uh, But on the equipment side of things, and, and also for the Tom Brady haters and Nicki Minaj fans, there's a special machine to measure the inflation levels of NFL balls. There's 12 primary balls and there's 12 backup balls. And they have to be inspected by each team a couple of hours before kickoff in order to make sure that no one is pulling any funny business. Now, for as far as the sideline tech, which I thought was pretty cool, there are two technical trucks on the field, one for team communication and then one for the Microsoft Surface comms. Now, another tech rep, that just walks around the field monitoring frequencies, he makes sure that no one else on the field can interrupt that frequency. A lot of times if uh, with sports complexes, they have stadiums within the area, um, they may have other performing acts going on. There was a situation, I think an example of, uh, Madonna was in town doing a concert and her when she was doing her little practice run before the concert, her comm system was interrupting an NFL comm system. So if you could imagine being a coach on the sidelines during an NFL game and hearing Madonna in your ear, I think that that's an interesting technical challenge that you have to actually solve. But concert rehearsals, concessions, um, asking, you know, ice cream is out at this stand. We need to get a refill or, you know, barbecue sauce is out over here. Somebody please get it. Like that's not the kind of stuff that an NFL coach wants to hear on the sideline. So a, there's a guy specifically walking around in order to make sure that no other frequencies are interrupting the, the conversations between uh, people up in the booth, people up in the box, um, refs communicating back and forth with each other, with the league. So there's a guy that specifically walks around just to monitor frequencies. And speaking of the tech, the technical staff, all on the field, notice, look for this next time. They're all organized by the color of their hat. So like a yellow hat oversees coach-to-coach communication. Uh, an orange hat handles coach-to-player communication. Purple manages the Microsoft Surface sideline viewing system. Blue is network technicians. And then the gray is for a football technology rep. Um, only, and I thought that this was also interesting too, that only team medical staff are the only ones on the field that can use cell phones. And all of this game day production, it doesn't just happen in the U.S., You also have to think about the international series because it's not a Jaguars game day unless the London is mentioned in some capacity. And I'm going to have a little bit of attitude when I talk about that because I don't like the London series, but I'm going to talk about the logistics of it because it's kind of fascinating. So let's talk about the logistics planning that takes upwards of a year to solidify just for the London games. And if you're watching on the screen right now, you can see a container that is placed outside of an NFL stadium where an equipment manager is loading up all of the different supplies that their team is going to need in the future whenever they do play over in London. So the LA Rams was the example that the NFL used that has a great breakdown of their process. So three months, yes, three months before kickoff, a shipping container is set from LA to New York City. And that container includes things like nutritional items, hydration items, medical supplies. It's essentially a walking hospital that can't travel via air. So it can't go by plane. It has to go by container and it has to go by ship. Also in that container is practice equipment, uh, generators for electricity, dry goods, and condiments, which will come into play, um, especially when you you think about the players that are over there and they're not necessarily used to London food and they want some you know some, some comfort food from home. So condiments are another thing that are shipped over there. And they put this all in a container, goes over to New York, and then from New York, it goes on a ship and then it gets loaded onto the ship and headed over to London. Now, for the most important shipments to be made, obviously the players who usually start a... So with the players in general, they're not going over there, obviously, three months in advance. But what the NFL tries to do is they try to set up the schedule to where the team plays away And when the team plays away, so let's use LA, for example, LA played in Atlanta. So they played against Atlanta on a Sunday. They're going to, those players are going to stay in Atlanta. They're going to stay there for three days. So their bodies can get used to changing of the time zones. So once they stay in LA for a few, or once they stay in Atlanta for a few days, then after the game is over, it's usually like a Tuesday or a Wednesday that they will then fly directly to London. And then that way their body is acclimating more to the time zone change quicker. And as soon as they get off the plane in London, what they'll do is they'll fly all night. So obviously, they're they're kind of hoping that the players are going to sleep all night. And so when they fly all night, they immediately get off the plane and they go right to practice because they want they don't want their players like going to sleep or taking a nap. Um, they want to get them right into the normal, you know, habits of, of, a, of a normal game week. Uh, usually coaches and players are creatures of habit. And so getting that first workout in they found over the years of playing that that is a great way to, to help the players get acclimated much, much quicker. Now, we mentioned earlier with the food that's being uh, it's a big obstacle as far as uh, accommodating the players whenever they come over. So they work with the the NFL teams will work with chefs over wherever the, the players are staying. They'll work with those hotel chefs in order to make sure that they're making more American style food instead of London based food and now finally the equipment that arrives 9 days before the game and that's usually around the time that players will start to travel to uh in th- to their London game as well as 9 days ahead of time it's an additional 25,000 000- pounds of cargo that's flown overseas. And it includes cleats, helmets, technology, um, iPads, jerseys, not iPads, actual pads that the jerseys wear, um, uh, jerseys, practice equipment, things like that. So that's all shipped over nine days in advance. That's not including the, the container that was shipped over three months in advance. So it's all of these intricacies that are coming into play. And it really is. It's like a Broadway show that's been organized down to the second and it comes together every day or every Sunday or Monday or Thursday, depending on when your team is playing all in the fall. And it's my favorite sport. Um, I'm sure if I speak for a lot of other people when I say that it's their favorite sport as well. So it was interesting to dive into uh, the logistics of the NFL and how uh, our careers in this space play a role within that space as well. So that about does it for this week's show. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. You can catch replays, if you missed any part of the show, you can catch replays up on FreightWaves TV. I have linked to the Cyberly playlist on FreightWaves TV, which you can now find in the show description and in the show notes. Until next week, you can find more shows up on Apple, up on Spotify. Once again, my name is Blythe Brumley. You can find more of my work over at digitaldispatch.io, all of my different social media channels. We will be right back here next week at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Freightways TV. And until then, I'll see you all real soon and go Jazz!